So welcome to the microinsurance um, sessional meeting. Um, the presentation will be given by David Kirk, who is the chair of the ASA microinsurance committee. And in his spare time, he runs Milliman's actuarial consulting practice for Africa. So he specializes in risk and capital management, regulatory change and insurance strategy. And he's been involved in significant projects across sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. So David, I'll hand over to you now, thanks. Oh, sorry, just one more thing. Um, the session is being recorded, so please, if you have a question, and I hope there will be lots of questions later, um, you need to have the mic to, um, to, answer the uh, to ask the questions. Thanks. All right, thanks, Janice. Um, I hope the threat of questions being recorded doesn't dissuade you from those questions. We had a really good discussion in Cape Town and in fact, one or two additional comments that are made into this Jobig version of the session will come out of those questions and comments from the Cape Town session. So we've been, I guess, threatening to do a sessional meeting on microinsurance for several years at the same time that the regulator has been threatening to actually put out some legislation to create microinsurance as a framework. And it does feel that now is exactly the right or maybe a couple of months too late time to be doing this because there have been a lot of developments the the presentation is 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 very educational and will be great for cpd and what that means is you're going to hopefully learn quite a lot but there are some slides with quite a lot of information on them all the boring slides are for for, for that I, I created and all the pretty nice looking interesting slides are created by other members of the the marketing committee particularly nabila kolia and uh, perry govindasamy who've helped a lot in putting the survey together and the presentation together uh, I'm very happy. In fact, I would encourage you to ask questions as we go during it. And as always, there'll be time for, for questions at the end. Okay, so I'm going to touch on the survey that we conducted. And I hope many of you responded to that survey. It was put out a couple of weeks back, mostly at the end of the presentation. But I thought, given that it is fairly key to what we're going to be talking about today, I'll give a little bit of a flavor and an overview of actually who responded. So we had something like 143 responses, which I thought was pretty good. Um, and the vast majority of them were received in the first kind of two days. Uh, somebody, one of the committee members, gave the, the submission on the very, very last day. I won't name that person, but they know who they are. Uh, but there, we got a fair number of, of, of uh, submissions and a lot of... Right, that's a TV, so that doesn't work. Um, a lot of... Uh, does this work? No, never mind. Uh, well, you can see, lots of fellows and lots of students and me, because I'm a little bit ignorant, I was surprised at how few associates there were as an associate members. And of course, the discussion was that that's not something that you automatically get. You have to apply for it. It's fairly new, although the profession has done a lot to try to encourage people to, to make use of that qualification and see it as something that's worthwhile. It's a little bit early days there. And it is a bit of a pity because we had hoped to try to understand differences between associates and, and fellows in terms of who might be fulfilling actual functions within uh, the market insurance space. Um, so sort of gender splits fairly typical from the actual world, a nice spread of different um, areas of work from valuations, pricing and product development. Um, one of the questions we asked was, what's the name of this person in being involved from an actual perspective, from a, a regulatory perspective in uh, market insurance B? It used to be called the microinsurance actuarial technician. And a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is how that name is no longer appropriate. And in fact, in the, the present, in, in the survey, the vast majority of people like the term head of actual function, head of actual control function. I think we have moved to more to actuarial function in the rest of insurance. That probably makes sense where it is. And one or two people say, oh, it doesn't matter. Who cares about a title? 
And I disagree. Um, this is not a task that people are going to be able to be you know, proud of themselves or not, but in terms of the, the label of what this type of person is, in fact, many of the people who said that, yes, it's time to move away from actuarial technician to head of actuarial function, gave that reason because, or gave the reason that it is because the role has actually moved a long way on. And it's no longer about just technical application of skills. I think that's quite important. I think we are probably going to then settle on head of actuarial function, which is, of course, what the, the regulator is calling it. So that's convenient, too. Now, one of the other reasons we did the survey is try to understand uh, the supply and demand balance between uh, need for microinsurance actuaries and the possible supply of microinsurance actuaries. And one of the elements we want to look at there is what the constraints might be from a transformation perspective. You know, it's all fine and well if there are 100 old white males who are able to fulfill this function. But, you know, we want to make sure we don't put any additional barriers from a transformation perspective in this. So that's why we did take a look at the racial uh, makeup of the respondents. Um, that's a bit of a preview. We will get back to more of this in, in detail. But now really it's time to go back to some real introductory steps. I'm hoping that many of you are familiar with the idea of microinsurance. But it's worthwhile maybe using the, the specific definition that's being used in the regulatory context. Because microinsurance can mean many different things to different people. In fact, in times gone by, I said, well, real microinsurance of a premium of a, of a couple of rand and very, very small sums assured, you know, actually, frankly, primarily mostly in the healthcare space, in you know, Africa, north of our borders and in uh, Southeast Asia and India and so on, that's been really, really, truly microinsurance. And more of what the regulatory framework in South Africa has looked at is more kind of mini-insurance, still small, but maybe not quite as micro. And that's an important thread coming through this when we touch on funeral insurance later on. So the general idea that we're looking at from microinsurance from a regulated definition in South Africa is risk-only products, no longer than 12 months, absolutely no uh, savings or loyalty or cashback benefit at all, nothing like that. Um, uh, generally, and this isn't a, a requirement for microinsurance, but it is more a typical characteristics of, of the market, policyholders who are in a lower income space and are typically less financially sophisticated. And although it might seem a surprise compared to that, one of the features of microinsurance from a regulatory perspective would be less onerous market conduct standards. So arguably in the very space where we need to be particularly careful to look after policyholders, we're saying we're going to maybe loosen up conduct standards a little bit. And there are good reasons for that around enabling the sales, uh, not having commissions be so low that nobody can be bothered to sell it, recognizing the potential sophistication of the distributors in that market and so on. Um, but that hasn't really changed in the, in the last seven or eight years. And I'll say seven or eight years, the original policy framework came out in 2011. And up to that, there'd be a lot of work moving towards that space. So it's been a very, very long journey. Sometimes I look at our microinsurance committee and think, well, what have we done in all this time? And sure, there are things that we could have done differently or better, but it's been very much a case of waiting for the regulator to you know, issue a document which would always be imminent, always be a few weeks or a month or two away. And it has been quite a slow, frustrating process. And then originally, there was going to be this actuary, the microinsurance actuarial technician. There's going to be a very narrow role just focused on pricing and no responsibilities for anything else, at least explicitly. And as a microinsurance community, we actually went through quite a process around who would be able to fulfill that role. And the reason the, we were looking for a role that was less experienced and less restrictive than a 10 plus years of experience statutory actuary was to increase the supply of people who could do that and possibly decrease costs. And that was 
in line with the National Treasury's perspectives, in line with the then Financial Services Board's perspectives. We took that proposal around associates being able to do that. We took that proposal to the Professional Managers Board, and they were happy with that. We went to council, they were happy with that. I'm flagging that here, right here now because although we got there on that old standard, the requirements on this actual person have changed quite considerably, and that we need to re-evaluate what is appropriate there. Now, this comes from uh, the, the uh, latest policyholder protection rules. And this may be the first time some of you actually appreciate that suddenly, very recently, microinsurance has become relevant to a whole lot more people who maybe didn't care about the license, but cared about funeral insurance. The proposal is basically that almost everything that applies from a conduct and product perspective that applies to microinsurance will now, if the proposals go ahead, they are still draft, will apply to anything that uses the word funeral in it. Any funeral insurance product with the needs to comply with these requirements. Any product that meets the, the needs of a, a final benefit, and you know, it's a fairly broad definition, you can't escape this with wording, would apply here. And this is fairly significant, and it takes the, the, the constraints that apply to microinsurance from being a little, bit, a little bit annoying, maybe doesn't make microinsurance that relevant, to saying anybody who wants to sell funeral insurance, we need to care about these quite a lot. Um, now, these reserved terms for microinsurance and funeral, they're relatively new ideas in South Africa. We haven't had a lot of reserved terms that you can label a product in a certain way, but it's not the first time. Hospital cash, there was an idea that that was a misleading name, so we needed to not use the term hospital cash anymore. Of course, most people just change it to be health cash, which I'm not convinced is less confusing. But since this is now the second time that the regulator is looking around restricting the use of words for a particular product, to me, this isn't an exception. This is more the, the start of uh, an actual idea going forward. I suppose there's a way to get my screen back there. Well, apologies if I twist my head around quite a lot. Ah, there we go. Um, for new products, PPRs say that you don't have to get approval from the regulator, but you would have to file the product specs with the regulator. And if they didn't like anything about the specs, the brokers, the commission, the advertising, the product itself, they could withdraw your ability to actually sell that product. So again, product rules at this level of detail are quite new and quite unusual in South Africa. I spent a lot of time learning things from my American colleagues over the last few years, and these sort of product rules aren't maybe as unusual there. Uh, policy term may not be longer than a year. Literally, may not be longer than a year. Um, a waiting period may not be longer than 25% of the policy term. So in the funeral space, where a six-month waiting period for or, or natural cause deaths is very, very common, suddenly becomes a 25% of, of one year or a three-month waiting period, which is a fairly significant reduction for a non-underwritten product in terms of the tools you have to prevent fraud and, and, and anti-selection. Um, the idea of a one-year-only boundary for a funeral contract is quite strange to people who are used to doing this as a, a whole-of-life product especially if you wanted to have some sort of five yearly or some sort of other uh, uh, cashback, loyalty, discount, premium, rebate, some sort of benefit. That's not permissible under microinsurance, and that's not news, but also now if these proposals go forward, it won't be permissible for anything in the funeral space. The regulator is trying to root out some bad practices from some bad operators. Um, but I think I worry, and, and many people involved also worry a little bit, that the, the reputable players actually are providing benefits that have characteristics that are worthwhile to consumers are going to be really severely constrained. 
from a micro insurance committee perspective, we've been scratching our heads for a while in the micro insurance space saying, well, should we be pricing for this on a long-term basis or on a one-year basis? Should we be allowing for the fact that individuals will age or not? It's just it's a one-year contract. It is allowed to auto-renew. There's a whole lot of questions that come into play here around how you want the product to work and then what the regulatory vehicle for it is. Um, there are restrictions on how you can vary the policy conditions, typically not really within a year, and by and large I'm supportive of that. Auto-renewal is okay, but you aren't allowed to guarantee premiums for longer than a year. Um, there are some restrictions on, on exclusions, uh, both for life and non-life. And I should mention, while I'm talking about funeral here, all the restrictions on micro-insurance also apply on the short-term insurance space, basically with this new section uh, 2A 2.1 in the, in the draft PPRs. Um, and on the non-life side, there are restrictions on excesses that you're allowed to incorporate. I think it basically boils down to company more than 10%. So what this does is it will have the effect of standardizing products, that might be good. It might allow people to better compare and understand products and know what they're getting and say, yes, this is one of those products. But inevitably, by standardizing, it's going to restrict differentiation and restrict innovation and restrict companies from being able to provide something other than a pure cost-based uh, product. And in the process, it may strip out some, some, some possible benefits to customers. So there's, there's a mix here. I think I understand where uh, the regulator is going, but there definitely are some concerns here. Maybe one last point, because you almost invariably get the question from people who are new to this, this debate. Why aren't we allowed to have a savings element? Why aren't we allowed to do cashback? Why aren't we allowed to do loyalty? Why aren't we allowed to do non-claim uh, bonus? And I think the, the, the thinking is twofold. One is to make this as simple a product as possible, with as few risks as possible, with as little complexity as possible, with no sort of ALM, not having to worry about the investments. And in fact, your investments by and large in the micro insurance space are restricted basically to cash and cash-like instruments. It's not clear that that would apply to, to funeral because there's this bit of a, a weird uh, overlap between uh, uh, prudential regulations and product regulations and conduct regulations. So the conduct and the policy specs are coming through the PPRs, which then affect funeral. But the micro insurance, the FSMs and GOMs affected from a prudential perspective would only apply to micro insurance and not funeral. But we'll go through it a little bit more in, in some detail. So you reduce the simplicity, you reduce the complexity of the product that allows cheaper, lighter risk management. And also, in theory, you reduce the possible impact of an insurer failing. Yes, the insurer fails, maybe worst case scenario, a couple of people don't get their claim. But in terms of people missing out on their life savings and the investment components, those are put to one side. So I think you can understand the intention but the restriction makes are, are, are fairly significant. Okay, so those are old slides for presentations of five years ago about the role of the actuary and talk about it's just a very narrow role and it's just the pricing and all the solvency and the risk and the capital and everything else belongs to the board of directors. But even then I had the concern that you've got an actuary involved here. And maybe if there were concerns around solvency, it would be expected that the actuary would be looking at this. So what is an explicit requirement versus what's an implicit requirement? And for true micro-insurers, as opposed to very large financial entities with an additional micro-insurance license, true small, lightweight-run micro-insurers with, with maybe more limited resources, maybe more limited risk management resources, there actually might be less sort of institutional support for that low natural technician in, in, in the midst of there. So even then, I think there were some concerns around what the professional obligations might be. Um, but the goalposts are moving, right? Uh, the proposed responsibilities are significantly increased after 2011. You're no longer just signing off on the, the pricing. 
Now, yes, the next few slides do a fair bit of words in them, but it might be worth a look at really what is implied here. The head of actual function is responsible for expressing an opinion to the board of directors regarding the accuracy of the calculations, the appropriateness of the assumptions underlying the valuation, and the technical revision and calculation of the capital requirements. So really, that is almost everything you would expect from a solvency risk capital reserving pricing perspective from a head of actual function. A way, way, way different story from just becoming with the pricing. Now, back further in time, back to 2011. This is what the original uh, regulatory framework suggested. The proposal would cement a rules-based approach to prudential regulation with a degree of product regulation that differs fundamentally from the principles-based direction that insurance supervision for the traditional market is heading. So with credits to the regulator, these messages, which maybe I've glossed over a little bit, I hadn't really understood exactly how meaningful this was going to be. That's the same. These are rules-based and detailed prudential regulations and product regulations, which are different and heading in a different direction than the rest of regulation for the more traditional insurers. So I guess the warning signs were there, or the advisory signs were there. It's only now we went back in the full light of these PPRs with these requirements there that I realized exactly how far this was going. Um, they wanted to extend access to a variety of good value formal insurance products. They wanted to facilitate formalized insurance provision by currently informal providers. So that's part about saying entities that weren't previously licensed, weren't previously regulated, maybe uh, were causing additional risks before there was no appropriate vehicle to regulate them. By creating the appropriate lightweight, simpler, lighter capital, lower expense vehicle, I guess the argument is that now we can then enforce regulation of the entity by saying you must therefore get a micro insurance license. Um, lower barriers to entry, and that talks to wanting to have a lighter weight actuarial role amongst others. Um, enhanced consumer protection, and you can see that in the way that the regulations have become a little bit heavier over time. So the original risk management proposals from 2011 were very lightweight. And I could tell at the time the Financial Services Board was maybe a little bit concerned about how lightweight they were. and didn't really want to have way more insurers failing. And in the, the, the following seven years, the regulations and the requirements, I think, have got, got heavier. And it facilitates the effective supervision and enforcement, supporting the integrity of the insurance market as a whole. Again, told this thing, they don't really want to have um, prudential supervision breakdown. Um, so that was the direction heading from, from then. Now we have an insurance act, which enables the idea of a market insurance license. And we have prudential standards, the governance and operational standards for market insurance, GOM. Now some of you will, I'm sure, be aware of the GOIs. This is a GOM, it's for insurance, for, for, for market insurers. And mostly it says, go read what the GOIs say. But there are some exceptions and some inclusions, some changes. But it makes it quite heavyweight. Now we've got a big chunk of the GOIs for traditional insurers that do apply in, in many ways to, to, to micro insurers. Similarly, in place of the FSIs, we have the FSMs. Fortunately, we only have two of them, FSM1 and FSM2, and they are, by and large, significantly simpler. Um, and something that says, uh, to my mind, snuck its way a little bit into the FSMs, is the idea of a micro insurance sale captive. Now, the very idea of simple, lightweight micro insurance and what mind is significant complexity and risk around a cell captive, it's interesting to put those two ideas together. I could see that for an existing cell captive provider 
who are used to the risk and the complexity there, getting a microchannel license to be able to offer those microchannel products with the slightly lighter capital requirements and the conducting that may work. But in terms of new entrants wanting to set up a new self-captive microchannel, that feels like quite a heavyweight uh, requirement. Okay, so as I said, the GOMs are pretty much everything is the GOIs, um, but you don't need a risk or remuneration committee. Fantastic. But if you don't have one, somebody else must do it. Now, many, many, many traditional insurers have a combined audit and risk committee for the same sorts of reasons. So it really hardly feels like it really is, is much lighter weight. Um, you have to regularly monitor at least every three, rather than every one year, review the effectiveness of the, the governance framework. It must evaluate its own performance every three years rather than every year. So, I mean, it's, there's a benefit there, but it really doesn't seem to be all that much. The good news is that policies on investment, ALM, liquidity, concentration, and capital management are removed, at least the requirement for them are removed. And that's most of the fact that you have a very constrained set of assets in which you can invest. So it kind of makes sense that that's not required, but pretty much everything else really is there. And in fact, you need to do an also. Again, the requirements are cut down, but you need to do an also, an own risk insolvency assessment, which is arguably one of the more complex uh, 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 reports and, and pieces of risk management to do. Uh, the Austrians are saying, you know, is this lightweight? It is lightweight, but really how much lighter is it? I don't know how light an ostrich is, but an ostrich can't fly. Uh, I'm not really sure where that was going, but it's a pretty picture of an ostrich. Oh, and of course, of course the animation, because ostriches can't fly, it sinks down. Um, Okay, so the question is, uh, and also then we have fewer control functions, that you don't have a risk management control function, and you don't have a compliance, big pardon, and internal audit control function. No, other way around. You don't have risk management, and you don't have compliance. But again, to my slight concern, now if you do have a natural function, somebody with deep insurance knowledge and risk knowledge, I feel that those other requirements are going to be placed more and more onto that actual function person. In fact, I, I do a brief slot in the professionalism course for new qualifiers to about some of the issues from microinsurance. And the case study I use talks explicitly to a scenario where failure of governance and compliance in, in microinsurance uh, ends up ma making the actual function holder, the, the actually involved, the price actually involved, have to take a lot of responsibilities around phase and compliance with the Long-Term Insurance Act. So I think there actually are some possible greater professional risks there for, for the actuary. Um, the heads of, of the control functions also need to provide input and assurance on the effectiveness of the systems for risk management relevant to the respective areas of responsibility. So again, that, that's a very, very heavyweight role. Uh, and again, there are, are, are some detailed words here. There are not too many more slides like this. You're responsible for expressing an opinion to the board on the reliability and adequacy of the calculations of the technical provisions and solvency capital requirements. You have to consider the appropriateness of the methodologies and underlying models, as well as the assumptions, review the sufficiency and quality of the data, and check the best estimates and associated assumptions against experience when evaluating technical provisions, and of course, yes, ultimately the accuracy of the calculations. Now, in my days auditing companies and in my time being a statutory actuary, when I think about getting the results right, I think about data, assumptions, methodology, results, and analysis. If you map it back onto that, that's exactly the same stuff. There really doesn't seem to be anything really that is missing fundamentally. So it feels to me like a pretty comprehensive actuarial function, actual control function, statutory actuary, if you like, role. Um, okay, now I guess one good element is that there are some areas we are providing advice rather than opinion or assurance. So it's your advice and can be taken or not, and it's not the same level of responsibility. But again, there's nothing that different there from what it is in the GOIs. From the FSMs, 
You have to give an opinion on the accuracy of the calculations and the appropriateness of the assumptions underlying the capital and the technical provisions. Now, the capital requirement is very simple. It's a maximum four million, a maximum of four million rand, or fifteen percent of net written premiums. So maybe you could argue that all you need to do is check that you've taken one five percent times the net written premiums. I'm not convinced that really is what is envisaged when you talk about the uh, adequacy of the methodology and the reliability of the assumptions and all the different elements. Um, there also are spreading requirements, just just incidentally. So I don't think we're going to get away with saying, listen, you just have to check that that very simple calculation has been put in place. Um, the good news on the asset on the uh, good news on the asset side is it is just market value. So in the same way for traditional insurers, we'll probably just say yes, assets market value rely on the uh, the auditor's view on that. The liabilities are strange though. It's the same strange language, frankly, that's in the FSIs, where it starts of all market consistent and then kind of falls away from that. But the drop off is even more dramatic in the market share space. So liabilities must be market consistent, oh, except for the technical provisions. Thank goodness, at least we don't have to worry about the technical provisions, our world being market consistent. Oh, but the technical provisions must correspond to the value of the insurance obligations in the event that such obligations are transferred to another micro insurer, i.e. an exit value or a market consistent value. But then we actually go to the formula, the prescribed formula, which is back to the UPR world. So there's all this nice theoretical language which bears nothing at all really to do with the prescribed formula. So again, to my mind, that actually just adds more complexity and, and more uh, uh, obscurity there. So I guess the good news is that these are also, remember, one-year contracts, so it's a fairly simple calculation, and the unearned premium reserve, and yes, they do use the term reserve here rather than provision, is basically a standard UPR, UPP as you would expect. You take all the premiums under the contract, so for the full year, you take off commissions and other related expenses, and you spread it out, so 365th method. That's, that's fairly straightforward. And again, over a one-year contract, it is hard to think of scenarios where that wouldn't necessarily apply. But for inwards reinsurance, because microinsurers can inwards reinsure from other reinsurers, we've got a different formula. Again, it's not a, a, a terrible formula. It is the one that is often used. But, and this reflects the fact that you will have you know, probably at risks attaching inwards reinsurance, and the policy may come in different periods. But I can trivially think of scenarios when this won't be the appropriate UPR or UPP formula. And in terms of expressing a view on the reliability and the adequacy and so on, you are absolutely definitely going to have to apply your actuarial mind to work out what is the correct UPP or UPR in respect of this inward reinsurance and compare it to the formula. And if it's higher, I think you're going to have a problem. So just the fact that these formulae are simple, I don't think really removes the problem. Then when it comes down to the outstanding claims reserve, and we're also using the word reserve here, you have to basically apply judgment or statistical techniques, no real prescription or guidance. Now, in most cases, this could be a fairly small number. We're not providing indemnity insurance. It is fixed sums assured. So both on the non-life and the life side, um, it should be a relatively known number. And the claims are typically going to be fairly simple and paid out fairly quickly. So if this number is a fairly small number on the balance sheet, but again, we need to apply judgment. And the IBNR, those of you who spent some time in the non-life world in years gone by, will know and recognize the old 7% which may be appropriate, it may not be appropriate. To my mind, again, you going to at least have to do some work to test that it's not miles, miles out. And then the URP, that's the uh, uh, additional or uh, unexpired risk provision, and now we're using the word provision rather than reserve, when required. So yes, if your premiums aren't adequate, you're going to have to hold additional reserve, that makes complete sense, but you're gonna to have to apply your mind to that rather than just blindly following the formula. Um, 
so these are a couple of the issues that we, we, we discuss in our market insurance committee. I think I've spoken about the OCR for now. Um, but when you have an annuity type benefit, you are required to hold the sum of those payments. So this is good. There's no discounting, so we don't have to worry about the discount rates. There's no discounting, so we don't have to worry about our assets going to achieve the same sort of return and what it is matching. But it does mean that the best economic matching assets would not be the best matching assets from a regulatory perspective, which is mostly where we've got to on a SAM basis. So we, we may have a bit of a mismatch there. Um, similarly, if we have a, a level premium and we have increase in QX over not the contract term of one year, but over maybe our hopeful lifetime engagement with this policyholder, um, how do we reserve for that? So this year, the premium is too low for this policyholder, so it's definitely adequate, so we, we reserve for that. But then, rather than putting aside some of that additional premium while that policyholder was young into a future reserve for when they're older and at higher risk, we just recognize that as profit. Until at some later point, later on down the line, maybe we now need to start holding these unexpired uh, uh, risk provisions for, for the additional risk. Again, if your pool of lives is actually at the same rate, it may not be an issue, but there's a fundamental disconnect between the idea of trying to write long-term policies being forced into a short-term one-year horizon. Um, and yeah, I can't really give a presentation without using the term contract boundaries, so that really is the issue here. A contract boundary imposed upon us by the regulations, again, bear in mind this would apply to all funeral insurance, could be quite different from that, um, that we've maybe, how we've managed it in the past. In a couple of engagements with my clients already on funeral insurance, I've got the very clear message that the Prudential Authority thinks that the most appropriate contract boundary, even now, for funeral insurance is a year or a month or very, very short. And for the bulk of my clients with long-term management of these contracts, uh, maybe the ability to reprice, but certainly not the, the intention, they are managed like long-term contracts and they have long-term contract boundaries, and certainly with the wording that we had originally proposed around contract boundaries, that was a great result. But over time, the actual wording in those FSIs has slowly tweaked and changed and a little bit sort of like unlimited capacity have been left out and so on. I think we're at a world where with combining the PPRs and some of the new wording, we may end up with very, very short boundaries on, on funeral policies. So that's a little bit concerning for me. Um, and here's another philosophical question. If we were to assess whether that 15% of net written premium was appropriate or adequate, what's the benchmark we're comparing that against? The rule just says 15% of net written premium. It doesn't say 15% of net written premium as a proxy for a 95th percentile or a 95th percentile or anything else. You know, it'll be higher than some level or lower than level, level, but it will be left up to the individual actually decide whether that actually is sufficient are we going to be asking these microinsurers to define a very formal economic capital system and, and risk appetite and tolerances? I don't quite know how I would say that actually in this case, 15% is deficient or 15% is too, too big. Um, it is one of the areas where if the regulations aren't changed, I do very firmly believe that the profession will need to provide guidance to people operating in these areas, well, how are we going to do this? The guidance will, on the one hand, give actuaries guidance of what to do, but also arguably something to say to their clients and employers, listen, I have to do this way. I'm not just being difficult and conservative because I want to, I have to comply with this guidance. And she gives actually some cover and some protection for doing what needs to get done. And on the flip side, if it actually wants to be unnecessarily overly conservative, well then at least we can kind of move things a little bit more into line in terms of what we feel as a profession is, uh, is appropriate. But again, I mean, the message here from me I'm trying to get across is an actual technician just focused on pricing is a very, very different world from where we are now. Um, I think I have spoken about most of these, but maybe let me just touch on a couple. 
Costs and supply. This has been one of the debates around why uh, an actuary involved in microinsurance may not need the same level of experience, qualification, practicing certificates, etc., um, as for a life insurer or now a, a short-term insurer. Um, we'll see some stats on the supply and demand of actuaries, and I'm not convinced that's particularly a problem. And even on the cost angle, you know, given the cost of running a microinsurer should really be mostly about administration. I'd be a little bit concerned whether you could save such a lot of money by having a uh, still appropriately experienced, appropriately qualified, but maybe not a fellow with a decade of experience. That difference there in cost, in my mind, should be relatively modest. And that is one of the points that has come across in the market insurance committee in the past. On the other hand, transformation, I think, is an important consideration that even if the overall supply of actuaries to fill this role is very, very plentiful, if we can restricting the sort of people who are going to be able to be in that role, uh, maybe there are angles or arguments, if we're so comfortable with the level of expertise and skill, to open it up to be a little bit less restrictive. I think that is one of the, the key considerations. And I guess I've already spoken about governance and institutional support around how much is this actually going to be left to the, themselves have to make even more pressured decisions than potentially within a traditional uh, uh, insurer. And so the professional risk element is what, you know, part of what, what we do as a marketing committee is we're trying to support and enable industry and also trying to provide resources and protection for actuaries working in this area. And I worry a little bit about the potential levels of professional risk. Um, so the requirements for uh, the, the, the experience have been set by the Prudential Authority, or they could be set by the Prudential uh, Authority. In fact, in the uh, GOMs and GOIs, they explicitly say that you must be a fellow or an associate. So for the GOIs and FSIs, they just say that um, it must be head of actual function. They are basically relying on the actual society to give some guidance there. But here the Prudential Authority has actually gone out and said that they think an associate should be sufficiently qualified, plus adequate experience. Um, we need to decide whether we're going to issue a practicing certificate and how that's going to work from, from a process perspective, or maybe we can just leave it to the boards of directors and individual actuaries to decide whether or not they are appropriately qualified for that role. So that's you know, what we need to be doing, you know, in, in, or we have been doing for a while, I've been thinking about this, how are we going to set out the requirements, should we be setting out requirements, how onerous should they be, and what we're going to be doing in terms of, of, of that, in terms of who could be head of actual function. From a guidance perspective, uh, there are a couple of options that have been considered. One is that we could just rely on the existing guidance, like the APN 106s and the APN 403s on the left side, and maybe saying, well, that doesn't apply, and this does apply, and that doesn't apply. Um, as chairperson, I'm probably not supposed to have my own very strong views, but I, I do. Um, I worry about that myself just in terms of trying to actually read the guidance and know what applies to you. Effectively, you have to have your set of exclusions, inclusions, carve-outs, and additions next to AP106, maybe even and AP403 as well, and be able to cross-reference between them to find out what your obligations actually are. Anytime one of those other standards changes, we need to make sure that we're comfortable with those changes, the referencing hadn't moved around. So, yeah, I, I think it's a bad idea, but it would certainly encourage consistency. I think what we could also do is say, well, listen, let's make sure we are consistent with those garden standards when drafting our own where possible, and hopefully making it significantly shorter without having to have all the with-profit stuff that's in APN 106, for example. Um, we could have a single standalone garden standard, which talks to reserving and pricing and capital and a whole lot of other areas. I guess that would be kind of the APN 106 on steroids. Um, or we could have several different ones. We could have different levels or tiers of guidance. This is what you must do. This is just the reserving and, and pricing part. 
this is some additional guidance because maybe we have let the, the standards or requirements be a little bit less uh, onerous and they're providing more guidance on what's expected. These would be a list of 25 things to consider when pricing. I think there could be some value in that, but maybe that's at a different level than uh, the full APN. Um, having one monolithic APN would at least mean everything was, one, was in one place, but it might be more difficult to differentiate well between this is basically required and this is just kind of a best practice. In the old world, we had required um, best practice and advisory. Now we basically just got advisory and required. So we maybe lost a little bit of differentiation there. Um, and then you could also then have an argument for actually lighter, less complex guidance, because hey, market insurance is supposed to be lighter and less complex. So that is one of the areas where I think we'd be good to get some feedback from you guys now or later on, you know, via email to me or, or the secretary as our market insurance committee discusses these. We have a meeting next week. So it'd be great if we could have some of that, that, that input uh, by then. Okay, so, so I have covered this. This is what the GOMs actually say. You must be an associate or a fellow with adequate experience. Um, it could be a little bit awkward if we are going to uh, tell the Prudential Authority, we know you said associate's okay, but actually we feel it needs to be a fellow. Um, so th th there is that specific element there. I think by and large, there's quite a lot of support for demonstrating that the associate qualification is worthwhile. And I guess some of the potential concerns around uh, maturity and experience can be covered with experience requirements. Okay, so I'm going to now sort of head back to some of the survey results, and this is just a, a, a selection of them. One of the key things we want to understand is how many, how much demand a supply might there be. So we asked the, the respondents you know, whether you thought that licenses would be existing in your, your clients, your, your, your employer, anywhere. And I think you could say from this that there's not a massive demand. I mean, there's still you know, over a third of respondents said they don't know. Um, but not at this time is quite significant. Um, license and adding a market license are a few, but I don't know that you're going to need a new head of actual function adding a license. I'm pretty sure that role would be taken on by whomever was the head of actual function for that group or that entity in the first place. Um, license converts to market shares license. Similarly, I'm not sure that really suggests an increased demand for heads of actual function, um, but unlicensed apply for a new license. It's only 3%. There were about 140-odd respondents. So that's basically four people were aware of adding an insurance license. Now, fine, that is just a sample of the, the students who, who, who responded. They may not have had the level within the organization that meant they were aware of these discussions. But my own experience is people got very excited about the market insurance license. You mean it's cheaper? There's less capital. It's simpler. They have to pay so many people different things. Fantastic. Where do I sign up? Oh, 12 months only, limited sums assured, can only be 12 months risk only, a lot of the interest dissipated. So I guess we still need to see how much demand there really is. I'm not expecting 1 July, when everything goes live, if it still goes live then, to have 50 people lining up outside the Prudential Authority wanting to apply for licenses. There's another potential gap here, though, is that these are asking actuaries rather than asking organizations that maybe haven't had that much exposure to actuaries in the past, they were unregulated, they were doing their own thing, and maybe where the vehicle becomes available to them, they may well be applying for it. So it's certainly an imperfect study, but it does suggest that there's maybe not an avalanche of interest. Uh, in terms of would you be interested in being a head of actual function, we had quite a lot of people saying yes, so that's great. I mean, we have you know, sort of uh, 60 or 70 uh, individual people saying yes, they would be prepared to be head of actual function. Um, and a few more don't know. Um, but it's not quite as straightforward as that, because some of these people said they would be happy to take on 10 mark insurers 
to be the head of actual function. So in fact, maybe we only need one person to do all 10. When you dig down into you see that there maybe are a couple of slightly enthusiastic individuals and, and maybe some individuals less experienced who haven't actually had the joy and pain of actually being head of actual function and realizing that it is quite a lot of work. You really do need to understand the details of your clients and at the very least not mix up their names with your other clients and so on. So I think 10 is perhaps a bit of an over overestimate. And we looked at the averages. The averages seem to be in the order of three or four per uh, uh, actual function holder, which is actually also the answer that I gave. I reckon I could probably keep three or four in mind at the same time, bearing in mind I would have a team of other people with me and, and, and I might vary. Um, there were quite a few students who said 10. I mean, 7%, in fact, is the, it's the highest bucket of everything, said that they actually a bigger part than four and five or higher. But still a significant number of people said they could do, do 10. So there's a little bit of, of concern there around, um, I guess, education and information. Um, those of you who were so keen to see this show that you went to Cape Town and here now might notice a small change in some of the numbers. When I was following up on some of the analysis, I found that there were a couple of people who had claimed to have practicing certificates who had sort of three months of work experience and one year of work experience and no, no post-qualification experience. So I suspect what happened there is that people didn't understand exactly what a practicing certificate was and mocked down, yes, I have one anyway. So we removed those, which did reduce the number of people with practicing certificates a little bit. Um, uh, so yeah, maybe there's, there's an educational process still to be had there. But still, by and large, this slide gives me some confidence that there isn't going to be a massive constrained supply uh, of, of, of uh, people being prepared to be headed of actual function. Um, in terms of people with uh, practicing certificates, obviously the vast majority of people didn't have any. Uh, we had a handful of uh, life and short-term and health in there. You add those all up, there's you know, probably around 10 or so practicing certificates. So I'm actually quite grateful to those of you who have practicing certificates, who filled out the survey, because I think we had reasonable feedback from them. Um, I think we also had a fair representation from insurers, life insurers, non-life insurers, and, and consulting firms of, of different sizes. So I think we had a pretty reasonable spread there. Um, now this is the, uh, maybe it's a poor title, but this is the what years of experience should be, do people think a uh, microinsurance a head of actual function should have. So there were plenty of people who said that you should have sort of six to 10 years of total experience. Um, but some people, I think with some students, it was uh, a little bit lower. I think that's natural. By and large, students felt you need less experience to be head of actual function, and fellows said you might need to have more experience. Now, I don't know whether that's the fellows trying to protect their turf, so you, don't, you want you young whippersnappers involved, whether maybe again is a little bit of an appreciation of maybe experience is actually worthwhile. But there are plenty of people saying that actually uh, having three, four, five, six years of total experience would be sufficient, and maybe none or one or two years of post-qualification experience would be, would be sufficient. And by and large, this is significantly lower than the actual uh, experience of the heads of actual function or big upon the practicing certificate holders who completed the survey. I think there is a fairly broad recognition that even though I am slightly concerned about the role not being absolutely simple, it is a simpler role with simpler products, simpler risks, a full, uh, full insurer, and therefore some simplification might be appropriate. Um, okay, I think we have covered that slide. Now, this was a bit of a test question, and this is usually where people complain to me that it didn't actually take them only four minutes to complete the survey. Um, a fair amount of detail in there. And this really shows what people said was an absolute definite requirement in the dark blue bars versus what would be a professional obligation in this kind of the greeny gray bars and the blue would be on request. 
There's a lot of information in the slides, so I'll spend a little bit of time on it. The first thing that I take out of this is that there's fairly broad recognition that plenty of the roles and responsibilities come out of a professional obligation rather than a definite requirement. And to me, this speaks to the need, the definite need for adequate guidance. Anytime we're doing things as professionals, I think it's absolutely critical that we have guidance to, to lean back on. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is that lots of the respondents had no idea what was actually required from the regulations. Plenty of these answers were wrong, if you like, but you can see that in terms of uh, assessing the reserves and the capital, so there was a little bit of a spike at some of the areas. So you know there was some familiarity and some awareness, but kind of quite a broad range of answers there. So we can dig down into that in more detail, but the key message is that we need to educate ourselves around what is actually definite requirements, and we need to provide guidance on what our professional obligations and what to do in different scenarios. There have a consistent practice here. I think in the life insurance space, we probably had the most time to coalesce a view of what statutory actuaries do and what's required. AP 106 has been around for a long, long time and it really has been developed over time. It's newer in the non-life space and short-term space. I myself have some concerns around the literal wording of AP 403 and what's actually going to be required of actuaries in different areas, but it's less developed and less nuanced, even though there have been plenty of actuaries involved and there have been some appointed actuaries where the FSB has required short-term insurers to have appointed actuaries. In the market insurance space, there's literally that much less, less clear. Um, okay, so, you know, I said between a quarter and a third of the requirements were actually viewed as a professional obligation, so that really does say the guidance is required. Um, so I think that, that, that mind informs you that there definitely should be guidance. And again, I'm not convinced it should be leaning on existing guidance, but I don't really have a strong view whether it should be a single guidance note or multiple guidance notes. Um, I think, again, I think I probably covered this. I think we could probably live with either a fellow requirement or an associate requirement, as long as we have an adequate experience requirement and an adequate process around issuing practicing certificates. But again, there may be no absolute need to issue practicing certificates. There's significant debate a year or two ago around whether practicing certificates should still exist and how that's going to interact with the, with the new, new SAM world. That is something we still need to discuss. And, and again, as part of that, we do definitely need to consider the impact of transformation. Okay, that is the, the slides I wanted to talk about. I'm very happy to take questions, and I hope there will be many as I've put quite a few thoughts there for, for your thoughts. But thank you very much for your attention. Oh, and if there are questions, please do wait for the, the, the roving marks so we can get it on, on tape in a permanent record, never to be removed. Got a question on you? On the one-year policy term, especially for the life uh, products, um, I'm begging to embrace that. So one of the issues is seems as if uh, the accusation cost will increase year after year as you try to retain that client. Um, find there's a, is it auto-renewal? But uh, if auto-renewal is in there, then we have to go back and uh, get that client as new business. Then there's also 
talk of simplicity. Uh, for example, no cashback is allowed. I think that uh, means there's less innovation and there is no ability to differentiate yourself from your competitors. Then the sort of market conduct requirements being less onerous. Um, I think it's a bit tricky considering that we are dealing with the less sophisticated, uh, financially sophisticated uh, policyholders. Yeah, thanks. Those are all good points if I can remember them. Um, so the first was around the annual policy term. I think the issue around acquisition costs there is less of a product real business issue than maybe a reserving issue. I think the process is intended to be able to be as seamless as you, as you want. So the policy will auto-renew, you will send us an SMS, and I think it would probably be good practice to be in contact with your policyholders at least once a year anyway. So there won't need to be additional uh, uh, in-person contact coming to the branch or signing new forms. It will just auto-renew in any case. So that removes some of the worst of those issues. And I think the idea behind that is to protect insurers from longer-term risks of having to worry about long-term mortality, which would then require a more sophisticated capital calculation, more sophisticated capital. So that, that's the theory there. One concern I perhaps have is um, if your commission upfront is appropriate to considering the profitability of this customer that you expect to retain at least some of over several years, then looking at a pure one-year view, your premium after commission may not look adequate, not be adequate to cover the claims in that period. Now, in the first year, you would typically at least have the benefit of a three-month waiting period that might limit uh, uh, some of your acquisition or your claim costs there. But that, that would be a concern for me. But it's not really a business issue. It's more of a strain and a reserving strain issue uh, on, on that side. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that it's more of a pain and an irritation rather than a, a real fundamental issue. The point on cashbacks and limiting innovation, I mean, I, I, I certainly tried to make the point, and I agree. I like the idea of encouraging competition and encouraging efficient markets, especially in the credit life space. Well, let's be clear, it is a commodity product. That should be perfect access to information, lots of competition, the most efficient providers with the lowest cost of capital and the lowest expenses should be able to provide that at the lowest cost, and that should be the product that consumers get. That is a commodity. But funeral doesn't necessarily need to be, but this way it's being forced to be. So we'll get maybe some of the benefits of comparability and efficiencies and scale, but none of the, the other nice-to-haves and in innovation providing better value, better products for consumers. But there's also a challenge in saying we're going to drive down uh, uh, costs to benefit consumers. Because one of the other aims is to encourage new entrants. And the reality is, in this market, in market insurance, anywhere in the world, the thing that wins is scale. You have the biggest scale, you have the lowest cost base, you actually have a viable business. And scale definitely helps existing incumbents and does not help brand new startups, no matter how lightweight the capital requirements might be. So to me, that's a real tension. We want to bring in new entrants. By the way, we're trying to actually also drive scale and cost and value. So that's, that's a real trick for me. And your third point on, on market conduct, yeah, absolutely. Um, trying to find that balance where the product is still made available, uh, but not at, at a rate that is a price that's not appropriate or not understanding the conditions. Again, they, we maybe have to grudgingly admit that some of the policy protection rules help, having waiting periods that are appropriate rather than very, very long. 
And yes, there are plenty of examples of insurers offering kind of two-month funeral policies with a one-month waiting period. And that really that doesn't seem, seem okay. Um, restricting your ability to vary policy terms and conditions um, early on, and certainly the, the conduct authority has seen a lot of abuse. They regards getting different terms and conditions all the time and premiums are moving around. So along with the relaxation of the conduct rules placed on brokers and insurers, it is at least being tightened up a little bit with product standards. So there, at least I think some of what is being done is, actually a lot of what's being done is sensible, but the unintended consequences and the adverse consequences are also quite important. But thanks for the question. Uh, thank you, David. Um, I just wanted to find out, you mentioned transformation quite a few times. What what type of transformation, or what sort of transformation are we talking about of the industry, of the profession? What exactly goes in that? Okay, so that, that's a good point. I didn't cover it in all that much detail. So, I mean, the the Insurance Act now looks towards transforming the industry from some new licenses, so that, that is there. Um, so people other than the actual society are at least looking after that and being able to take control of that. Um, I mean, depending on your view, you either think the actual society is doing a very good job or a poor job around transformation, but I think we will hopefully agree that work is being done. The concern is that uh, the people, the qualified actuaries in South Africa, with a decade or 15 years of experience, are going to be, I'm making numbers now, but overwhelmingly white and male. And so the concern there is that we do all these good things, you know, to encourage transformation in the industry and, and so on. But when it comes to saying, right, these are the specific requirements for head of actual function in the space, you're almost requiring it to be a white male. And that, that's obviously problematic. Trying to find the balance between saying, listen, I think we will all agree that experience is useful and important. Um, but we have gone naturally have far better, still good progress to go, but far better in the younger actuaries and actual students and associates. So opening it up to associates might really enable us to find a lot more good black actuaries in that, that, that space. Uh, so that, that's one of, the, one, of the, one of the issues there that we, that we wanted to address in, in the survey. And I think in the, I don't have, have a slide on it, in terms of practicing certificate holders who answered our survey, I think there were two who weren't white. So it shows in the world of people who are doing that role for insurers, it's, and white and male, right? So we were focused a little bit more on, on the race side of things, but gender is, is as much of an issue, again, in the old, older uh, league of the profession. Carl, thanks. Thanks, David. Um, you are aware that there have been public responses and comments on aspects of the PPR. Yes. Um, your presentation doesn't cover some of the public comment and feedback. Um, is that, I mean, that, that significantly impacts on, on, for example, the funeral policy definition. So. Uh, indications are that they will relax the conditions around funeral policies where you can have multiple year contracts and where you can have cash back or surrender values um, available. So there is some shift back. I mean, the pendulum has swung quite hard into the one corner. It looks like there is a bit of a, a, a shift back uh, to a more accommodating environment, should I say. Uh, for insurers, if you wanted to go under the, the micro-insurance license, obviously, then they are still the restrictions. Do you have any comments on that that might give some... Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the window for public comment had closed, and I was aware, I mean, uh, recommended several of my clients to make those recommendations in. I admit I wasn't aware of public feedback from the regulator yet. I know several of my clients have had those discussions and have given some informal feedback. I wasn't aware that there was uh, official public feedback out, which is also one of the reasons I was reluctant to, to mention it. Um, thanks. David, um, did we respond? 
as a market shares committee. And, and, and what did we say? I mean, I, I think objectively balancing these, these uh, forces on the barriers to entry is, is extremely difficult. And, um, and this principle that insurers and micro-insurers, uh, as we see in the PPRs, are basically the same, um, to step back from that is 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 quite significant. It's 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 quite a step. Um, so I'm curious to know whether 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 we responded and what we said. So we didn't respond to the PPRs. The window there was relatively relatively short. So we have responded to the sort of market shares focused issues around the FSIs and so on, but not the PPR itself. Yeah, so we, we had some fairly productive discussions with the regulator, trying to also you know, provide our input to them and make ourselves available as a resource. Any last questions? Okay, well, thank you very much for your attendance and your participation. Hopefully you found that useful.